to Hebrews chapter number 9. Tonight, as we have slowly been making our way through this wonderful book, this evening I would like to teach on the blood of the New Testament. Why the blood is important, the meaning of it in relation to Jesus' death, and how it sanctifies us. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. I'm going to start reading with verse 16. And I'll read through verse 22. Although my objective is to make it to the end of the chapter. We shall see. For where a testament is. There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that we live in this time where we can really express our gratitude for the death of your son and for the blood that was shed on the cross for the remission of our sins. Father, forgive us for every one of our failings. Forgive us, Lord, the, the times we did not live up to the standards that you have applied in Scripture. However, we are so grateful for the grace that makes up the gap, Lord, where we're lacking so many, so many different areas of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that your son died in order that we'd be able to approach you with confidence and boldness as the Scripture teaches. So tonight, as I break the bread of life, we look into the scriptures, edify us through your word. Help me to speak clearly, clarity in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen, amen. This letter of Paul to the Hebrews deals with things that are of an excellent nature. Over and over again, you run into phrases like we have a better priesthood, a better priest, a better sacrifice. It is a book that demonstrates how what we have is much better than what they had under the Old Testament. It's for that reason you should never allow anyone to encourage you to go back under the bondage of trying to keep the Old Testament law. There are a lot of Christians today who are still attempting to live according to the dietary laws of the Old Testament, the ritual laws of the Old Testament. But according to Hebrews, according to Romans, according to Galatians, Jesus' death on the cross was of such effect that it nullified the ceremonial aspects of the law. The only part of the law that carries over into the New Testament is the moral aspect of the law. So where it says, you shall honor your mother and father. Paul quotes that in Ephesians, where the scripture says, you should not lie. Paul says we should be honest one with another. Where the scripture says you should not, you know, uh, steal, you should not murder. All of these are yet in the New Testament. This is why Jesus is able to say there are two commandments upon which all of the law hangs. 
You shall love the Lord thy God with thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you to love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul in Hebrews goes into great detail explaining to us why Jesus is better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, after the order of Melchizedek. Last time we looked into Hebrews, we looked at the first half of chapter 9. We explained to you certain things about the issues of the tabernacle and the furniture that was within the tabernacle. We explained to you about Christ's death and how much better his blood was than that of the blood of bulls and calves that were offered. And Jesus himself gave us a good conscience. And we spent some time working on the conscience and how that a person's conscience is molded and shaped by the environment and by the information that's put within it. And we concluded talking about a testament, and this is where we're going to begin now. We've all heard the phrase, the last will and testament. It's very important for you to have one of those, even if you don't believe they're important. If you pass away without having left one and you own a number of different things, you pretty much guarantee there's going to be a battle over your estate, over your individual items and your possession. What a will does is specify who is an heir of particular things that are in your possession, how you want it dispersed. As the writer says in verses 16 and 17, the testament goes into effect after the testator dies. And we told you there is an exception with that in the story of the prodigal son. The father gave the son the inheritance before he even died. That, that's irregular. It doesn't happen often. And it's not something that most parents would do. But the image of the, the testament and death, we, we want to consider Abraham now. I want to tell you a story from Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is an important story about covenant. The Lord came to Abraham in the night and said, Abraham, I'm going to do something great with you. Abraham said, well, I don't even have an heir to take upon all the promises that you've spoken to me about. The Lord said, you don't have to worry about that at all. But he said, I do want you to know that this covenant that I'm making with you is going to be on the basis of blood. So you have to sacrifice some animals. So Abraham got several animals along with some birds. And the scripture says he cut the animals in half and he laid the pieces of meat in order next to the one next to the other. And he says that it, it, there was so much meat out there that quite naturally the, the fowl of the air, birds like ravens and stuff like that, they were kind of trying to swoop down to devour the meat. And the scripture says Abraham, he drave them away in that old English. He, 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 he made sure he shooed them away so that they couldn't get to the sacrifice that was meant for God. What God was showing Abraham is that any promise that I make with people there's going to be some kind of a basis, or should say, there's going to be based somehow in blood. Someone or something has to die in order for us to understand that the agreement and the contract has been ratified. All of these animals had to die. All of this blood had to be shed. And that's what God told Abraham. Now, that's important because that's how God works with covenant. When God makes a promise to you, and God says, I'm going to do this for you. There has to be the shedding of blood, even if we don't particularly like it. 
That's the way God ordained it in Scripture. Well, later, when the law was instituted with Moses, this procedure continued, and this is why the Scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You say, why is sin and forgiveness and blood, all of them connected? Because that's how God planned it. He ordained it that way. Now, maybe if you would have wrote the story of salvation, maybe you did it differently. Maybe you would have based it upon rice offerings or something. But God did it in this particular way. Verse 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Now, verse 18 has to be read in connection with verse 15. So let's look at this. And for this cause, he... Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And this is why in verse 18, it continues by saying the first testament was dedicated not without blood. Moses covenant that he received from God was also based upon blood. You say, how is that? God gave Moses the pattern of the tabernacle and told him that once the tabernacle is erected, two times a day, animals are to be sacrificed. 9 a.m., 3 p.m., six days a week, forever and ever until I say it's not, it's supposed to change. So for 1,500 years, at least two animals died a day, six days a week. For Israel's sins. Now, if you do the computation on that, you'll find that with all the different feasts and festivals they had, there were a lot of animals that had to die. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, according to the computation of some scholars, he offered 250,000 animals to tell God how much he loved him. So when you consider that, and you think of how many Innocent animals perished because of Israel's guilt. You can understand why we appreciate the blood of Jesus so much. That no animal has to die. No turtle dove is sacrificed. No bull, no goat, no sheep. Rams don't lose their lives because of that. The scripture says once and for all, Jesus offered himself to bear the sins of many. Well, let's look at verse 19. After Moses had spoken every precept to the people, it's at that point that he sprinkles the book and the people with the blood. Now, there's a story that goes with this also, because verses 19 and 20 are referring to Exodus chapter 24. And I'll tell you what happened there. God spoke to Moses and said, you get Aaron and his sons and 70 elders and you come and approach the holy mountain of God. But you keep them far enough back where they're not as close to me as you are. And you come and you worship me. That's what Moses did. He told them, you go this far and stay and I'm going to worship God. So he goes into the presence of the Lord and God speaks to him. He writes these words down in a book. Which likely was something like a scroll. He goes back to the children of Israel and these elders and he explains to them about these words. And then they're required to get some offerings to sacrifice to God. And he tells them, catch half of the blood of the sacrifices and put it in a pot. And the rest of it you're going to use for something else. So he takes the blood 
And he's got the words he's just read to the people. And he takes the blood from the pot. And can you imagine thousands of people standing out there? And he takes the blood. And according to verse number 19, he sprinkles the book, the holy book. And then he's slinging all of this stuff on the people, the blood. Now, the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter 9, we're not even supposed to eat blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. We know also that the blood is important to God as a testimony. In his mind, it speaks. Remember, Cain killed Abel. He said, Abel being dead, yet speaketh his blood is crying out to me. So you say, what's the point of sprinkling the people with the blood as well as the book? God's trying to unify them. And God's trying to demonstrate to them that uh, what had to die on your behalf has now become one with you. And you are to acknowledge that something had to die. And this whole process is part of the sanctification of the people. Three things here. The last sentence of verse 20. God hath enjoined unto you. Talking about the book. That means they are obliged to follow the words that God gave to Moses, and the blood is the evident testimony of that. Your reception of this blood, the sacrifice of the animal, puts us in union, in covenant agreement together. The fact that I'm taking you through this ritual or through this ceremony shows that I'm making a covenant with you, and I'm going to honor my word. Now, now God in the New Testament does not sprinkle us with blood. Jesus died for us, though. So we are all affected by the blood. The other way the scripture describes it, we've been washed in the blood. You know how we sing the hymn, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? So, so praise the Lord, we haven't been sprinkled, folks. We've been washed in it. And that's a blessing. Your sin, my sin, has been cleansed. Notice here in verse 20, 21, excuse me, 21. He also... Sprinkle the tabernacle and the vessels. And verse 22 tells us why. Because all things are purged, that means cleansed, with blood. That's part of sanctification. The, the vessels of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made by human hands. The tabernacle furniture were made by human hands, sinful people. So in order to purge all of this that comes from the hands of sinful people, he has to put blood on it in a sense to figuratively cleanse it or purge it of its iniquity, which naturally comes from us. Well, we talk about inherited sin or original sin. All of us are born in sin, shaped in iniquity. That's what Romans teaches. One man died. Romans says because one man died, sin has passed upon all. Because sin has passed upon all, death is everywhere. Wherever there's sin, there's death. Everything in this world dies, born to die. Doesn't matter if it's a flower, a moth, or a baby. Everything in this world at some point ceases to live because of sin. And this is why the blood of Jesus is necessary for each one of us. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. And the moment we put our faith and our trust in him, it's at that point we can honestly say we're innocent in the presence of God. So when you die and when I die, having placed faith in Jesus, the scripture says that we're justified by the blood. 
That means now it is just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Romans says we're justified by the blood. Ephesians said we're made nigh or brought near by the blood of Jesus. So at one time we were estranged from God, alienated from God, separated from God by our many sins. But the blood of Jesus erased all of that that was against me that said I'm a guilty sinner. I deserve hell. I deserve to be away from God. The blood cleansed the slate so that now I've been brought close to God through what is called reconciliation. And then, of course, Hebrew says that by means of the blood, Jesus entered into the holy place. The only reason you and I can pray with confidence and approach God meekly, but yet with boldness, is because of the blood of Jesus. See, I, I can't go to God on the basis of my good works, because I haven't really done anything in life that's really worth anything. And you can't go to God on the basis of all your good works, because you haven't done anything that really pleases God to the point that he would find you acceptable. But having become a believer and been acceptable in Christ, we can go to him on the basis of our relationship with his son. And we are now sons ourselves in the same way you're happy to receive your children when they come to you. God is not happy to receive you because of a relationship. That's what blood does. And that's a reason to be quite happy. So he purges us with blood. Well, let me let me ask it this way. Any of you ever did, you don't have to do a show of hands, though, but any of you ever did anything and felt guilty afterwards? Yeah. You, you ever said something to someone and then afterwards, immediate conviction comes from God, the Holy Ghost. Or condemnation comes quickly from the devil. And even after you prayed and asked God to forgive you, you still are bothered by your conscience and you just feel terrible. Well, thank God the feeling is not what determines your relationship with God. You're purged. You've been cleansed. Even if you wake up in the morning, as I do sometimes, and you don't feel like a preacher or feel like a Christian, you're still a Christian. I've told you before, there have been plenty of times I've gone to sleep and had what likely is a, a nightmare or a bad dream and and, and here I find myself uh, back in the military barracks again, and I've got to get up for inspection, and I haven't shined my shoes in the Marine Corps, and my, my uniform hasn't been ironed, and I'm jumping up trying to do everything I can to get re ready, only to realize that I'm in bed and I'm not in the barracks. And I'm in a sweat, you know. Oh, my goodness. Then I turn and I look over there, and then there's this lady in bed next to me, and I'm jumping. I'm like, oh, my Lord, what's going on? Then I realized, oh, goodness, this was just a dream after all. That's my baby there. I just pat her. That's my baby there. But the feeling, though, see, I, I felt like I was single, although I was married. So sometimes you feel like you're unclean, even though you already found forgiveness with God and you are clean. And believe me, there are a lot of people that can't live with the feeling of guilt and shame. And you hear stories every day of someone who takes a gun and shoots themselves or hangs themselves or does something that's not nice because they don't know how to live with it. 
But if we have an understanding of the blood of the New Testament, what it is that he does for us, it changes everything. The last sentence of verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Remittal is the, the, the freedom that comes from being loosed from sin. The, the moment you realize that Jesus' death on the cross has freed you from a sinful lifestyle, it's at that point that you can say, oh, my Lord, the burden is lifted. That's not to say you won't be tempted. All of us have a sin nature. It's the sin nature that makes it possible for us to be tempted in the first place. I heard a preacher one time. He uh, came down to an altar and, I think it was R.W. Schambach. And the man asked Schambach, he said, I want you to pray that I never have to have deal with temptation ever again the rest of my life. Schambach said to him, you really want me to pray for you? He said, yeah. He said he laid his hands on that man and said, oh, God, in Jesus' name, kill him. He said, because the man jumped back and said, preacher, I don't want God to kill me. He said, well, that's the only way you're going to be in this world without the temptation. You're going to have to go to heaven because as long as you have this physical body, you're going to be tempted. That's what happens. So remission of sin sets us free from a sinful lifestyle and sets us free from the, the, the habits of sin and from a sinful nature. However, there is still within us this inclination to do bad. Scripture says it's that part that we have to reckon dead in Christ, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not me, but Christ that lives in me. But once a person finds that their righteousness is in the Lord, then they feel a whole lot better about themselves because now they don't have to try to work to make themselves feel better. And if you're living your life according to good works, I can tell you're never going to feel good enough anyhow. You can't wash enough cars. You can't bake Pastor Darrell enough pecan pies. You can't clean enough churches. You, you, you can't cut enough grass to make yourself feel good. I, I love the story of the, the Native American and the, the white man that were in a, a, a meeting and they both were deeply moved by the same, the same sermon. And in that service, the Native American received Christ as a Savior. But it, was, it took days for, for the white man to accept the Lord. But eventually, he relented. Conviction came to him, and he accepted the Lord, and he experienced the sweet peace that comes from experiencing forgiveness of sins. And so he was talking to the Native American Indian. He said, I just don't understand. Why did it take me so long to receive Christ in you? It seemed like it was immediate with you. That Native American Indian, he said, I can tell it to you in the form of a story. He said, my brother... He said, at one time, a rich prince came and, and he offered to give each of us a new coat. He said, you, you shook your head and replied and said, I don't think I need a new coat. I'm quite happy with the one that I have. It looks pretty good. And the Native American Indian said, but when the same offer was made to me, he said, I looked at my old tattered blanket and I said, this thing is good for nothing. And I gratefully accepted the beautiful garment. He went on to say, you, you couldn't give up your own righteousness, but knowing that I had no goodness of my own, I was happy to receive the righteousness of, of the Lord. And, and that's a beautiful illustration because many people are like that. You witness to people in this area or 
any other part of America and you talk to them about God and you will often hear, I'm just as good as anybody that goes to church. I don't need religion. See, what they're saying is my righteousness should be, and I keep the golden rule. Then you ask them what the golden rule is. You ask 10 people the golden rule, it'd never be the same. Yeah. Look at verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens. Now the patterns are the earthly things. The tabernacle furniture and everything based upon things in heaven. That they should be purified with these. Talking about with the blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the, the sacrifices of divine nature had a better, better purging through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not to say there's anything in heaven that's unclean. But it is to tell you that in heaven there is the image of the temple. And I think it's Revelation 16, 1. Whether you hear a voice that comes out of the temple that tells the angels to go and pour the, the plagues or the, 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 the uh, bowls of wrath into the earth. And the reason we had an Old Testament tabernacle and the reason we have a spiritual tabernacle called the church is because what exists in heaven now is something called a temple. That's not going to always be that way. Scripture says one day New Jerusalem is going to descend from heaven. And it says that in New Jerusalem there will be no need for a temple because the Lamb will be the temple. God will be the temple. There'll be no need for a sun because God will be the sun. There'll be no need for a moon because there'll be no night there. So everything down here on planet Earth in some way or another is a pattern or a mirrored reflection of something taking place up there in heaven right now. That's, that's what he's trying to say here. So these things down here on, on planet Earth had to be sanctified or purified by a greater sacrifice. Verse 24, so Christ is not, not entered into the holy places made with hands, talking about his ascension to heaven now, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. God, or I should say Christ, represents us at the throne of God over there. We represent here before men on planet Earth. So it's a, the representation is dual. He acts as our mediator in heaven. We're down here on planet Earth to act as his representative so people will learn about who he is and learn his name. If I don't share the good news of Jesus and you don't share the good news of Jesus, how is anybody ever going to know? Now, and I will tell you this, after all these years of living here in Nebraska, I have learned that just because someone tells me that they go to church, that does not mean that they know God. And that does not mean that they're born again. And you can ask some basic questions. I've said to people before, are you born again? And they look at me like, like it's a trick question. Yeah. Or you can use another question. You can say something like this. Does Christ live in you? Now, see, that sounds so deep that they just stammer and stutter. I mean, it's a yes or no question, you know. Does Christ live in you? And they're just looking at you because they don't understand what it is you're trying to ask them. But the person that has a relationship with God understands clearly the only thing I'm being asked is whether or not 
this great God lives in me and through me, and I have a personal relationship with him. Yeah. It's amazing. So Jesus represents us in the presence of God, and that, that's good news, too, because we can't represent ourselves. If, if I was your mediator, there's a good chance I'd go to sleep on the job, but Jesus doesn't go to sleep on the job because he's eternal. Verse 25, it says, nor yet that he should offer himself often. So he didn't become a sacrifice that needed to be repeatedly offered. He died once and for all. As the high priest who enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. So once a year, the high priest could go into the holy of holies. Now just, just try to recreate this in your mind. You're a devout Israeli Jew in ancient times. And you have felt bad all year long because maybe you accidentally murdered somebody. Or maybe your cattle accidentally gored somebody that handicapped a, a man or a woman for the rest of their life. And even though you paid the money, as the Old Testament law says you should, you just still feel so bad about it. But you know that on the Day of Atonement, there's remission of sin. So you wait for that day where the priest goes out there and the animal is sacrificed and he takes that blood. He's got it in the pot. He goes into the most holy place and he's going to sprinkle that over the mercy seat. He's going to go through all of this stuff. And, <clears throat> and for that one fleeting moment where you know that the, the, the blood is being applied in the most holy place and this is the day all of Israel receives the atonement or the covering of their sins, you feel so good. For that moment. And then you sin again. And then you've got to wait 364 more days to get that feeling one more time. With Christ, the person who steps out of darkness into light finds forgiveness of sin. And the beautiful thing about it, the scripture says, a righteous man falls seven times and he gets back up again. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Oh, Jesus said 70 times seven, 490 times. You mean to tell me that 490 times in a day or so I can find forgiveness of sin? Yeah. And that's what grace truly is. To know that God forgives you even when you're in the midst of repetition of iniquity. God's looking for godly sorrow, though. He, he doesn't want us to just say, okay, God... Uh, forgive me, then go back out and do it again. Forgive me, then go back out and do it again. He does want contrition, and, and that's important. So then in verse 26, he says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the age or the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus According to Galatians 4 and 4, in the fullness of times he appeared. I mean, he didn't appear during Isaiah's day. He didn't appear during David's day, nor did he come during Moses' day. Somehow, God the Father, God the Holy Ghost, God the Son had worked this plan out so that the Son would manifest himself in this world at an appointed time. And it's at that point, at the end of that particular age, he shows up on the scene to redeem us, to basically put the temple out of business, to say the sheep don't have to die anymore. John the Baptist said it this way, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's what he did. So once the Lord showed up, 
And he brought about this time that verse number 10 calls the time of reformation. It's at that point we realize everything has changed now. And because he put away sin, we're now free from the fear of death. So verse 27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this to judgment. I remember a conversation I had with somebody one time, and they were trying to explain to me, you can live so close to God that you never die. Just, just go on and have the Methuselah life, they were trying to tell me. And I was listening to them as they were going through all of this, and I said, so you're trying to explain to me that if a person perishes at the age of 100, they're dying because they don't have faith and they just don't understand the deeper truths in the revelation of Scripture. And the person will say, oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm telling you, you can live forever. You don't have to die. You can live until the Lord comes back. Be a thousand years old, 300 years old. I said, well, if, if, if that is the case, why are we having funerals every day? He said, well, because people don't believe. I said, so you're trying to tell me you're the only person... <laughs> on this planet that possesses true faith and everybody else that's being buried every single day. They don't know God. Are you really trying to tell me that they wouldn't go that far? But that's essentially what they were saying. The scripture says it's appointed unto men once to die. That's exactly what it means. Should the Lord tarry and he, if he doesn't return for his bride, every one of us in here are going to go by way of the grave. Somebody's going to put us in a box, put us in the ground, and somebody's going to stand over you and say, hopefully the truth about you having a strong relationship with the Lord and you caring about God a whole lot. But the reason that the judgment comes afterward is because that's what Christ is right now. He's a judge. He's, he's a mediator now, but one day he's going to be your judge. I should put it that way. But judgment is not something that we should fear because we have the security of standing before the Lord in the righteousness of his son. I'd be terrified about going to sleep every night if I honestly thought that when I stand before the Lord, if, if well done, thou good and faithful servant, or depart from me, you worker of iniquity, was based upon whether or not I did enough good deeds. But tonight, when I put my head on the pillow, I'm going to sleep soundly because I know I'm safe and secure in him. In him. Yeah. If I drew my last breath, I know exactly where I'm going. I'll be ushered right into the presence of the Lord. And that's the kind of assurance you should have. Don't allow anybody to rob you of that. And if someone is able to rob you of that, then you don't know it as well as you ought to know it. Because there, there is no uh, one or two little things that's going to cause me to become shakable in my faith. So verse 28 says, Therefore, Christ was one time offered, once offered, to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The offering of Christ occurred one time because it was effective 2,000 years ago and it's still good now. That's the New Covenant, see? New Testament. I don't have to do like the Muslims who have no assurance at all that they'll go to heaven unless they die as a suicide bomber. That's the only assurance they believe they have. 
I've read in the Quran so many different times and read through so many of their traditions and legends. They have no assurance at all because it's all based on good works. I have to do enough to make Allah happy. Got to please him by doing anything that I can. But the one thing Muhammad did promise is that anybody who dies in the pathway of jihad will instantly go to heaven. So this is why you have young boys and young girls that are willing to put a suicide vest on and run into the midst of a crowd of people, drive a car into the midst of people, run up against some Israeli soldiers and take their lives because they honestly believe the next breath they draw after their body is exploded in a thousand pieces, they'll be in what they think is a Muslim paradise with virgins there to feed them and to look after them. But can you imagine the shock and the horror to draw that next breath in a place that's not so nice? Yeah. Assurance is something that we have because of what Christ has done for us. He bore the sins of many. And the scripture says to those folks who look for him, will he appear the second time? That means he's coming back. Now, that's contrary to what a lot of people teach today. But the scripture here says this author believed that the Lord was going to return. And that's exactly what I believe, too. Paul believed it. Peter believed it. John believed it. Jude believed it. I believe it, too. I believe there's going to be a point in time where the Lord himself is going to return. He's coming back for this bride. And people who say this is all superstition and legend and you should go on and live your life without being concerned about the return of the Lord. They can do whatever they want. But I'm living prayed up, packed up and ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And here's another way to look at it. He may not come back this evening. For his church, but he could very well come for you or for me tonight. Put your head on that pillow and somebody pass away. You, you hear it all the time in the, uh, the news. Uh, we had a neighbor one time across the street from me. And his name was Ed. Ed was a man that liked to drink. And as a kid, it was quite common for me to come out of the house, walk down the driveway and look across the street in the little flower bed area there and see a, a leg hanging up over the little part there because Ed passed out drunk in the middle of the night and just fell asleep there and didn't even bother to move. Well, <clears throat> Ed was one of these stubborn men that nobody could talk to. So we had a lot of guys, a lot of fathers in the neighborhood that tried to talk to him about his life because, you know, typically if you got somebody that drinks a lot, they're usually abusive to their wives and had a lot of other baggage that comes along with that. But Ed didn't want to hear what anybody had to say. But one night, uh, Ed went out and got into a drunken deal and somehow stumbled back in the house, and laid down on the couch, left the front door open and everything, middle of the night. Next morning, cable guy comes to the house, and uh, he sees Ed on the couch, and so he's got work to do with the cable, so he just lets himself in, goes working on stuff, and then comes back outside. After about a half hour working and realizing the man never moved, uh, he, he, he then uh, made a phone call to the wife who was at work to let him know I'm here and husband here. He just hadn't moved at all. Of course, he went over there and checked him by now. Ed doesn't have a pulse at all. Man is dead. But here's the thing. Ed went out and got drunk. And he did this after he'd come home from work. Ed fell out on that couch, 
But Ed had no idea when he fell out on that couch he was never getting up again. See? Never getting up again. And that's just a terrible way to leave this world. Yeah. There, there was a preacher one time, he was in a pulpit, and he hit, made the statement, if I ever go home to be with the Lord, I want to go home while in the saddle. Talking about preaching. Died in the pulpit. Yeah. Died telling folks about Jesus. You know, it was a great homegoing service for him. But somebody had recorded the service, and they sent it to a, a preacher acquaintance of mine, and... That preacher was riding in a car with his wife one time, and he said, I want you to listen to this. Listen to this. This is, this is Brother So-and-so. This is his last sermon that he preached. And he, and he stuck it in. He started playing it. And as it was playing, he was saying to his wife, now listen to it. He, he's, got, he's got nine minutes till he's dead, and he doesn't even know it. He's got seven minutes till he's dead, and he doesn't even know it. Five minutes till he's dead, and he doesn't know it. And then the tape stops because he falls over. Now think about that. The reality of death. It is appointed unto men once to die. We don't think about it very often. But I've stood up at many a funeral and I've said to people that I knew only came to church because of a funeral. I've said this casket right here, and I know I'm going to say it a thousand more times in my lifetime. I say this casket right here is evident testimony to all of you in here that tomorrow is not promised to anybody. Yeah. And the person you see stretched out here, if they were a believer, I usually tell them, if you ever want to see this person again, You've got to go the same pathway they went to get to heaven. There is no alternate route. You're not going through Buddhism. You're not going to go through Mormonism. You're going to come through the cross and get to heaven to see mom and dad again, and you're never going to see them again in your lifetime. I've said that over and over again. To them that look for him, I'm looking for him. He's going to appear a second time without sin unto salvation. That's going to be a great day, folks. I'm telling you, oh my, I'm telling you. I don't know about you, but I'm loving this book of Hebrews. I am enjoying this, and it, it's, a, it's a sobering thing to think about, the, the, the idea that one of us, one day, you know, we're just going to go be with the Lord and be in heaven, but it's also a day of rejoicing to know that when that occurs, we're going to see him face to face. I, I long for that day. Uh, I'm always saying, just like John prayed that last prayer in Revelation 22, even so, come Lord Jesus. And it seems like I pray that with a lot more repetition right around tax time. I just say, even so, come. <laughs> come, Lord Jesus. Come on, let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. We are so grateful that we can take a Tuesday evening and just really break away from all the events of the day and minister the word of God and think about your redemption that you provided for us. Father, if we have not told you thank you today, please forgive us. We certainly want to say that to you right now. From the depths of our heart, we're grateful that you haven't brought the knowledge of your son to each one of us. These things we do pray for in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.